Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the promise, Lord, you are keeping. Before your birth, we were told that you, your name would be Emmanuel because you are God with us. Thank you that you do not stand aloof. Thank you that you became one of us and suffered every temptation just as we do with this glorious difference. You remained and you are eternally without sin to be a perfect, sympathetic, and sufficient Savior to all who trust you. And I know, Lord, people have come into this, uh, into this room with great joys and the happiest days of their lives, and others heavily burdened, struggled to make it, wondered if it was worth it, hoping that something they would hear today would lift their hearts. Thank you for being the sufficient to all of those things. Meet with us, Lord. We must hear from you or this will be time wasted. So let us hear from you and trust you and love you and do as you tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I was listening to a very distinguished leader talk about his work and what it was like, and he said uh, that he routinely felt like he was being trampled to death by ducks. You ever feel like that? I think what he meant, because I've given it a lot of thought, because that's the way my mind works, when someone comes up with a phrase that interesting, trampled to death by ducks, I sit and think about what they might have meant, and I think I get it. It's not the elephant that's putting his foot through your sternum. That would be quick, right? It might be incredibly painful, but it would be over quickly. But to be trampled to death by a massive amount of ducks, that would be a really particularly bad way to go, don't you think? Just one thing after another. And some days I, some days I understand it. And this week has been one of those weeks. Uh, I'm heavy-hearted this weekend, uh, not for any particular personal reason to me, but because so many people I know and care about are hurting in some way. It's Memorial Day weekend, which is exceedingly hard for families across our country. Others who found themselves, uh, they thought on the cusp of great joy, have been disappointed. Some of them can only take refuge in a little portion of Scripture tucked away in the Old Testament that says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we have wonderful families. It's moving season, and we have wonderful families like the Wonders and the Burkholders that are, are moving out of state. And Kevin and Karen have given untold thousands of hours to serve the Lord and to serve all of us here at this church. And some of you rascals are moving soon, and it's breaking my heart. And it just feels sometimes like it's one thing after another. You ever have moments like that? Yeah. I think that's what that man who hid a lot of his pain with humor meant by being trampled to death by ducks. It's not a sudden, brutal crisis that can be quickly overcome. It's... It's a slow ache, and one thing after another, and what comes next? 
That's why I'm so glad that somebody asked such a pleasant, difficult question. We're in a series regarding the tough things in life in the Bible. And somebody asked this difficult but beautiful question, what will heaven be like? So this week, with all this sorrow and tears and the lives of others and in taking those burdens a little bit into my own heart, I've been on two channels, pain and tears and uncertainty on earth and this beautiful certain joy of heaven. Do you know how to answer that question? What would you say? What will heaven be like? Here's what I'm convinced of. I think that people secretly wonder if it will be boring. And the laughter tells me that you understand that because maybe you've worried yourself. When we think of heaven, a lot of people think of a Red Bull commercial. Have you seen the Red Bull commercials? Red Bull, uh, an energy drink, the tagline is, Red Bull gives you wings. Ah, there's there's the Red Bull fiends, okay. I don't mess with it because I'm intolerable enough in my natural state without any any stimulants. Coffee makes me unbearable as it is. But I think a lot of people have that idea that heaven is this sort of disembodied state where you kind of float harmlessly around. And maybe you'll be one of the ones that's given a harp. And certainly you'll be expected to sing. And I had a guy tell me, I'm worried about that because I don't like to sing. (laughs) He said, I come late to church for a reason. I just want to hear the sermon. It bugs me when people tell me to sing. And I can't relate to that because I love to sing, but I understand his concern. I'd like to tell you about heaven. And what I hope it does is it fuels and fires your Christian imagination in the best possible way. And what I mean by that is God does not expect you to make things up. That's not what I mean by imagination. But God has chosen in some detail to tell us what heaven is like. At the end of the book, and I won't even have time for all of those descriptions, He's actually given a beautiful, detailed description that boggles the mind if you try to take it in and imagine what God is describing. There are two things to understand when we discuss heaven. There's what I'll call heaven now, and there's something else called heaven later. Heaven now is what is always referred to at funerals. And people who haven't given God or heaven a thought very long, suddenly wax into these long and beautiful descriptions of what they, in that moment, apparently spontaneously imagine heaven to be like. Have you heard these eulogies? I certainly have. There is a heaven now. In other words, there is paradise, there is rest and joy in the presence of God right now. Scripture tells me that much. Look in John chapter 14. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, why would He tell them that? Because it's John chapter 14. They've just left the Last Supper. Jesus has announced His death. Jesus has dressed Himself in the Last Supper as if He were a slave. 
He has humbled Himself to wash their feet, and they know by His own reckoning this is the end. He's told them, this is the last time I'll enjoy this meal with you here on earth. I won't enjoy it again until later in the kingdom. And one of the most loving things and one of the greatest proofs of the tremendous love and mercy of God is that Jesus, in his, as His own agony begins, He is thinking of His disciples, and that's a beautiful and holy thing. I've seen heartbroken mothers and fathers turn all of their love and mercy to their children and try to comfort their children who can't begin to understand the mother, the pain that their own mom and dad are going through. That's love. To be in your own worst moments and to think, to comfort, and love others, that's what Jesus is doing. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then He gives them reasons. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And yes, that's a good biblical description. If you grew up as I did with the King James Bible, you remember it differently. It says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And that's led, between that and an old hymn, that's led to this idea of clouds with little shining houses built around. Well, Jesus is after something different. He envisions a big family house with plenty of room for everyone. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And now we're getting somewhere. Heaven then, according to Jesus, is not, a, is not an idea, it's not a concept. It's not something that is spun out in a hope that doesn't actually exist. It is a place that He can go to Himself and He in which He is preparing room, He is preparing space, He is preparing literally a place for His disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, this can be so familiar to some Christians that they just rush by it. But please understand the importance and the practicality of what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's an actual place. I am actually going there. And someday, I myself will come and take you. Not some idea of you or some memory of you or some trace of what you once were. I will come for you. And you, yourselves, the men listening to me, you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And I'm so glad that Thomas was the honest one in the group because they must have been terribly confused. I'm glad he spoke up. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you think carefully through what Jesus has just told you, He has told you it is a place to which He will go, and He will in some way prepare a place for His disciples so that together someday they will enjoy one another, and the door into that place is Jesus. The door into the Father's house, the one who opens this new and glorious existence, is Jesus in His Father's house. Paul, in his most painful letter in 2 Corinthians, and again, I won't take the time, but Paul 
lays out all of his troubles. Paul didn't have a trampled by death experience. Paul had an agonizing, brutal, often imprisoned, often betrayed, continually in danger, sometimes left for dead, shipwrecked, persecuted, without a friend on earth. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, lays out everything that it's cost him to follow Jesus. And in the middle of this very painful, heartbroken letter, he says this, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and, what's he saying? At home with the Lord, and please make the connection. Paul has the certainty, when I am away from this body, in other words, when they finally succeed in killing me, in that moment I will be at home with the Lord. And that's heaven right now. Jesus said to a man beside him, dying with him on a cross. And it's a, it would have been a, a compelling afternoon for all kinds of reasons to witness the death of the Son of God as promised and prophesied a thousand years earlier. But it would have been incredible for another more mundane reason, it would have been incredible for me to be beside the cross of Christ and see Him crucified between two men who admittedly deserved their death, who as I read the Gospels, they both mocked Him, they both poured contempt on Him as they died beside Him. But something happened to one of them. And sometime in that space of just a few hours before Jesus died, before either one of them, one of the mockers turned to the other and said, have you no fear of God? We deserve what we're getting, but this man has done no wrong. In other words, he was literally converted. He made a U-turn. He changed his mind about Jesus even in the last hours of his life. And he threw gasping breath because that was the nature of crucifixion. You died by asphyxia. He asked Jesus for a very simple thing. In Luke chapter 23, he said to the Lord something exceedingly simple, probably because he did not have much more breath. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not much of a prayer, is it? But there's a lot in it. Jesus... When you survive this, you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's a very simple way of saying, I believe that everything they said about you is true. I believe that the cross won't be the end of you. I really do believe you are the promised king. And when you come, remember me. I want you to see Jesus' response. Read it with me. Luke 23, 43 says, truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's heaven right now. And what a, what a transfer, what a move to be from a Roman cross, dying with the guilt and shame of you have been killed in the most horrific way ever invented, and in your death you know you deserve it. I cannot begin to imagine the self-accusation, the shame and the guilt that a man would heap upon himself dying that way, and rather than hating his killers, thinking to himself, I earned this. This is right. And then for that man to hear from the Lord, truly I say to you, Today, you yourself 
you, the man dying beside me, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. This is heaven now. What am I trying to tell you so far? This, people who die in Christ are safe at home with him. If your loved one, if your friend, if your child trust Jesus, Those words at the funeral are not hopeful wishes. They are rock-solid realities gained by Jesus Himself. People who die in Christ are safe at home with Him. This is heaven now. This is what Bible scholars call the intermediate state. Or what Randy Alcorn, who has benefited me greatly through his writing and preaching about heaven, calls present heaven, heaven right now. A word about theological terms. Don't be bothered by the fact when a pastor or a Bible teacher uses a term, sometimes the cults will say, you don't find that term in the Bible, as if that proves something. May I suggest to you that you can't find the word gravity anywhere in nature? (laughs) But you're experiencing it, right? We're not floating up together to the roof of this building. What is gravity? Gravity is a term that students, scientists, have given to describe something that occurs in the world. What the Bible is describing here is that there is a blessed reality, a real and personal existence with loved ones and with God Himself that people upon their death experience immediately. And that gives such tremendous comfort to know that your loved one, yes, is they're in that casket. But all they've done aside, to use biblical language, all they've done really is set aside the tent. And they themselves are safely at home with the Lord. What a great comfort. But this is only the intermediate state or present heaven. The eternal state is different. In other words, what Paul is experiencing with Jesus now, what that man who died on the cross beside the Lord is experiencing now, that's real and blessed and joyful, but it's not the end. Somehow it gets even better. And in his second letter, Peter refers to it in this way, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter wrote, but according to his promise, we are waiting for, for what now? For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has made a promise, and what we are waiting for, Peter says, is a new creation, new heavens and a new earth. And here's the newness right here in the next few words. It is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Would you say that righteousness dwells in this earth? No. That's why this incredible man said he felt like his life was being trampled to death by ducks. Why all those little heartbreaks? Why all that constant anxiety? Why that sudden crisis? In other words, why does joy leak so easily out of life? Why are we beset with fears? Why do we have to lock our doors? Why do we have to watch our kids? Because every day on earth teaches you that righteousness does not dwell here, at least not perfectly and not fully. And even the best things in this life have been stained. The beautiful gift of marriage is difficult. Have you noticed? 
I don't want to get myself in any trouble here. My wife's not in this service. But I'm not getting in any trouble. She would be the first to tell you that marriage is difficult. She's married to me. A few months ago, she lit me up with a really well-deserved, beautiful piece of sarcasm. Because that's our third language at home. We speak English, Spanish, and sarcasm. And we might speak sarcasm best of all. And I said, Sharice, my goodness, you were so sweet when we were dating. And she said, that's my pushback, right? Pastor's not a smart man sometimes, folks. I'm articulate, but not smart. Don't get it confused. And she said, I married you. She always wins, folks. She always wins. And we both laughed, and that was fine, but marriage, friendships, work, childbirth and child-rearing, jobs and careers and earning and achieving, it's all beautiful, and it's all shot through with trouble, every bit of it. That's why Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. And the fact that it's a new physical creation won't be the best part. The best part, and what will keep it forever beautiful is, this is a new creation in which righteousness dwells. The end of the book, the end of God's story begins to tell us in detail what that is like. Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is future history. This is as certain as if it had occurred a thousand years ago. John is giving you in his revelation, his unveiling, he's look, he begins in his day and then he looks into the future in a time which no one can say for certain when this will begin, but it's just as certain as if it already had. And John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This present creation, John says, has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And here's where your biblical imagination can begin to fly. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Boy, there's a lot in that. One of my very favorite things of being a pastor is standing with the groom at a wedding and seeing with him for the first time his bride and then quickly looking at him to see his face when he sees her. What's that like? It's magical. Because he's known her for eight years. But on that day, on that moment, he says, almost always, they almost always say, wow. <laughs> this new city, this holy city, no such city on earth now. There's not a city on earth that is holy. What does that mean? Set apart for God. Have you noticed there's a little crime in our town? We live in one of the safest spots on earth, and I bet you locked your doors. 
There is a holy city. There is something better coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, catch this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Where God is going to choose to live is with people. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Future history, coming soon, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have what? Passed away. They're done. Wow. What a promise. C.S. Lewis captured a great deal of Bible teaching on heaven by writing this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's why nothing on this earth is completely satisfactory. Even if it's a perfect day, you wish it would have continued, right? Even those few perfect, beautiful moments end. And you savor those precious times with family and moms say to beautiful little boys and girls that they're raising, stop growing up so fast. Why do they say that? Because this moment is sweet. And there's a few sweet spots in life where you can look around and say, it's all the way it should be. And then that perfect moment, like all moments, ends, and you yearn for more, and you struggle to recreate the magic. That's why so many people wreck their budgets on vacation as they can't afford. What are they trying to create? Heaven on earth. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Have you been there recently? <laughs> I know some of you love it, and I, I like it well enough, but are you kidding me? Kids are upset. Dad's saying, I can't believe I spent $958 for this kid to complain. We're going to have a great time if I have to kill all of you, okay? It, it's that sort of thing. Why? Because that's, that's this heaven. That's this earth. There's another world. And this is the foolishness of idolatry. This is the foolishness of life apart from Christ. People spend themselves into bankruptcy and ruin their health looking for something in this world that can satisfy, and even their perfect moments are too quickly stolen away from them, and they find themselves sometimes eventually always dissatisfied by life on this earth. Lewis says the reason is you were made for another world. The world as you experience it now has been ruined. All of God's creation is both glorious because He made it and fallen because we sinned in it. And how is this new heaven, this new earth, how is this going to take place? Well, it's, it's as simple as understanding what we celebrated at Easter. It's all possible because of the resurrection. It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits, the first and best of the resurrections, 
that will assure the resurrection, the eternal life, new heavens, new earth, new body for all who trust Him. The resurrection is the reversal and the renewal of all that sin and death has ruined. That's what we're awaiting. That's why we're in what Lewis called right now the Shadowlands. It's not pitch dark. We can see plenty of God's light. But there are shadows everywhere. Why? Because we await the resurrection. People sing this hymn, Joy to the World at Christmas time, don't we? Did you sing it this Christmas? If you look at the lyrics carefully, it goes way beyond the birth of Jesus. It looks to the new heaven and the new earth. It's more a song of the eternal state of the second coming and the renewal of all things because it has blessings like this. It's we sing in joy to the world that we want blessings to flow far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found on earth? Everywhere. Everywhere. This midlife crisis that so many people experience, what is that? That's one last final foolish attempt to find heaven on earth. And what men and women who go through poorly a midlife crisis and start acting like 14-year-olds all over again, what they find themselves is that what joy they had on earth is ruined by that foolishness. What will change all that? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and eventually our resurrection with Him at the time of His choice is going to reverse and renew everything that sin and death has ruined on this earth. That's what Paul labored so hard to explain to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, a long chapter in the New Testament with one subject, the resurrection of Jesus. Because already in 1 Corinthians in other words, among some of the very first Christians, Christians were already saying, there's no way there's a resurrection. That doesn't make any sense. So Paul explains, 1 Corinthians 12, 15, 12. It's all on the screen. Watch with me and follow with me carefully. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead because that's the gospel. That's the good news you're hearing from this pulpit every single week, that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead, not to show off, but that was the vindication by God that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted, that it was sufficient. And His death as a human being who was actually born on earth can make Him stand in your place, and His death as the eternal Son of God makes His death cover not only His own life, but the lives of all who trust Him. As a human being, He can take your place. As God, His life is infinitely valuable. And the foundation of the Christian faith is that Jesus rose from the dead. If there is no Easter, Christmas means nothing, because everybody's born. No one can call their shot and claim to rise from the dead and then actually do it. And that's the heart of the Christian message. That's what Paul says is the foundation of our faith. It's what gives us security that God is not only willing but able to make all these things I'm telling you happen. So he explains to the Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. Look at the importance of the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see the connection? Apparently, some people were claiming, saying, well, it's okay if Jesus rose from the dead, but there's no resurrection from the dead for us. And Paul says, no, what is true of Jesus will be true of you. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Himself is still in His tomb. He goes on, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's the importance of the resurrection. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that means they've died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You understand that phrase? If all Jesus does, if the only thing you have in Jesus is to make your life better here right now, that's pitiful. If you take Jesus as life coach, sort of a super spiritual Tony Robbins from 2,000 years ago, and he makes your life a whole lot better here on earth, it's pitiful. If all you want of Jesus is a better life now, Paul says it's pitiable. But here's his point. Read it with me, in fact. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is what is at stake, Paul says, in the resurrection. If he didn't rise, it's all over. We're liars, you're still in your sins, we're the most pitiful people in the world because we've put our hope in someone who is dead and a truth that does not exist, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What He is is the first fruits, in other words, the first and best part of that harvest of those who have fallen asleep. And now we're coming to the end of the story and why the new heavens and the new earth are so important. Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Let's make the biblical connection. Paul says there was a man who brought sin into the world for the first time. Who was that? Adam. And all of Adam's race have been sinners ever since. We fell with him. And just as he brought in death, by another man has come also the resurrection from the dead. So Paul can write to the Philippians, another Christian church. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please understand this. This is a much shorter treatment of what Paul has just been explaining to the Corinthians, and this has powerful practical application. Paul says our citizenship is where? Heaven. There's an actual place. There's an actual place of belonging, an actual nation, an actual city. 
and our true final citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from that place, we await a Savior. Didn't Jesus already come? Yes, at Christmas. And now we live in these shadow lands. We await His return, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Please understand the connection He's making to the resurrection. The, the apostles witnessed Jesus actually back from the dead. They recognized Him. In fact, to his unbelieving, skeptical disciples, Thomas, the chief of the doubters, they were all stunned. None of them could believe it at first. And Thomas famously said, unless I see the wounds and handle the body, I won't buy it. This has earned him the terrible nickname of Doubting Thomas. So Jesus comes to him and says, look. And Jesus has breakfast with His disciples. In fact, in the Gospel of John, He cooks it for them. What's happening? It's not a ghost. It's not an apparition. It's the first fruits of the resurrection. It's Jesus enjoying His glorious body, recognizable, still wounded. To me, that's one of the most astonishing things about the new heavens and the new earth. The only thing imperfect in it will be the body of Jesus Himself because He will still apparently bear the wounds of the crucifixion. Why? So that you will never forget this is what it cost. This is why you're here. This is why your lowly body has now been transformed, has now been resurrection, has now been resurrected. Paul says Jesus does that by the power that enables him even to subject how many things? All things to himself. Everywhere the curse has spilled, Jesus has the power to subject, to reverse, and to renew all of those things. Practically speaking, what does that mean on a heartbreaking day or on a week where you're trampled to death by ducks? Whether it's a little trouble and common anxiety or heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, I don't think I'll ever be the same kind of pain. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now remember, this is Paul who was shipwrecked, imprisoned, betrayed, left for dead on more than one occasion who if he could be here as the preacher, and boy, don't we all wish that could be true. If Paul were here, he would be, I'm convinced, he would be hard to look at physically. Some of you would politely look past him because I'm convinced because of what he suffered as I read the physical descriptions of what happened to Paul, I think he would be peering at this Bible with great difficulty. I think his body would be bowed, and I think he himself would be a shattered shell of a man. And Paul says, this is light and momentary affliction. Paul, are you crazy? Are you a masochist? No. It's light and momentary only by comparison. This suffering right here, right now, is brutal. I've never been anything through anything like it in my life. But in comparison, Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the sort of thing that causes women to keep having babies. Why? Because that day or two or however many agonizing hours of labor 
I've just witnessed it twice. Looks awful. <laughs> One of my friend's jokes, if men had the babies, all of the maximum size of a human family would be three. Because the dads would say, okay, I found out. We're never doing that again. Why does she want another? Because as agonizing as that pain is, it pales in comparison. It's nothing compared to the joy of the child. That's what Paul's talking about. We have waiting for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what we're waiting for. C.S. Lewis again. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's life on this earth and life in heaven. Simply this, folks, Genesis 1 to 3, the first three chapters of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible, that's paradise lost. Revelation 21 and 22, that's paradise regained. You won't be bored. The things you've enjoyed on this present earth I'm convinced with very few exceptions will persist in the new heavens and the new earth. Music and laughter and food work without the strain and the stress and the frustration and the anger that so often accompany work. That's all going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth. You'll be yourself as you say on your best day hoped you might be. You'll experience, in other words, if you want a simple summary of how to think about the eternal heaven, don't think about harps and clouds, forget about Red Bull, think of Eden, where there is family and friendship and genuine love and perfect peace and satisfying work and all the things that God left on this earth, again, with a few exceptions, the things that God left on this earth will be remade and renewed in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will experience for your first time in your life, God, life as God intended it to be. Maybe that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared those things for those who love Him. What am I trying to tell you? This, heaven is God's final answer to sin and suffering. This isn't the end of the story. If you want the end of the story, you have to read the end of the book. Why are we so concerned about evangelism? To tell people that there is a life beyond this life? that this life, even in its joys, will soon be over, that we are foolish to live for the things that we can see in this earth. They're good. They're pleasurable. They're enjoyable. Why? Because God made them, but they're ruined. They're ultimately unsatisfying because they were meant only to be enjoyed 
as a gift from Him, not as His replacement. That's the real trouble in the world around us. People are living for God's creations. They're living for His gifts and ignoring the giver. And God is so determined in beautiful, faithful, reckless, sacrificial love. He is so determined that people experience life as He first intended it before sin entered and ruined everything that He put His Son in our place to experience every temptation that human beings have ever succumbed to, everything that you find shameful about yourself that you wish you could get out of your life once and forever, Jesus faced that very temptation without sin, and then He went undeservedly to a death on the cross to usher you someday into the new heavens and the new earth. That's why He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through So if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't turned away from your sin, maybe this is your morning. Here's my great concern about teaching and preaching, that people will hear of certain future history and think to themselves, well, that was nice. Now let's get back to real life. If you think this is all there is, you'll waste your life, Christian. If you lose the urgency that there is a real heaven and a real hell, that there is a God so determined to save people from hell that He stood between them and judgment, and that judgment was poured out on Jesus instead of deserving sinners like me, you'll be casual about sharing Christ. You'll be casual about following Christ. But if you can do what Paul says and you can put your eyes on things above, if you can look past this earth and see things that are still unseen to your present physical eyes, someday you'll enjoy them. And you'll discover the beautiful promise in Ephesians that God has done all these things to show the amazing riches of His love to His people in the ages to come. And not for a moment you will be bored. Every moment you will be thrilled and you will enjoy if, but only if, you trust Christ. Let's pray. Maybe you've been on the edge. Could I invite you to humbly go before God and cross the line right now and just just stop putting Him off? Honestly, just person to person. Just you and me talking, as it were. Haven't you put him off long enough, friend? Can you feel the claim of your conscience? Do you feel that hunger for something better, for something beyond you? For the release and the forgiveness of sin? be done with the guilt and the shame. Jesus did all that. All of that was put on Him at the cross so that you could go free. He was innocent, but made Himself take your place as though He were guilty so that you could be free and forgiven. And having done all that, He promises you life as you've never experienced it. My invitation, if you don't know Him, is to turn to Him in loving trust and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I don't understand everything about you, but I know this. I've sinned and you saved. Please save me. Maybe you can find yourself in the words of that man on the cross. 
and say, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Apparently, in genuine repentance and trust, that's enough. That simple expression of, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm doomed, you save, that was enough for that man. It'll be enough for you if you trust him. And Christian, are you, I mean, really? This earth, that's what you want to live for? That's what I want to live for? What foolishness. Let's look higher. The things yet unseen, but as certain as yesterday. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would deal with those this morning who need you as Savior. That as I pray aloud, they would pray in the quietness of their own mind and turn to you and tell you in genuine, sincere humility that they're sorry for their sin and they want you to save them. I pray that that would happen right now. Lord, many of us, the majority of us here, love you. That's why we've come. We want to hear from you. We want to obey you. Give us eyes to look beyond this earth. It's so attractive here. So many things charm us and stop us here. Help us to look past all of this to eternity and to live for you. If this morning you've trusted Jesus or you have questions, let me invite you personally to find the card in the bulletin and fill it out. Let us know where you are. If you have questions or you're trusting Christ as Savior, you've heard the gospel before, but today you're believing Him. I'm not talking to you about joining the church. I'm talking to you about trusting Jesus. If you've done that this morning, take a moment, fill out the card, and let us know. And Father, receive this offering. It is no effort to repay you. It is an effort to worship you, to show you in practical obedience that we trust you and that we aim to be generous with you as you were first generous with us. In Christ's name, amen.